Well, if you're new here today, uh, Phil kind of explained what we're doing right now. It's this Outward Faith series, and it's this idea of an investing in people around you, building these relationships with Christians and non-Christians alike. But so often in our faith, uh, you know, we, we, we understand we're Christians, that we're born into the family of God, that, that we were on our way towards eternal death and now eternal life, and then we kind of just take that for granted, and we forget the miracle that is to be considered a child of God and that we have this gift given to us now that we can share with other people and be part of God's kingdom work around the world. And, and we've been going through this series just talking about these different ways to really be investing in people. And last week, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan, about the importance of meeting the needs of the people around you not classifying who is and isn't your neighbor and worthy of your love, but rather being there for people and living out the greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, that you would love all people as your neighbor. And the question we kind of ended on last week is, if the expectation or the invitation for us is to love all people as though we, they were our neighbors, are we loving our actual neighbors? The ones that live right next to you, right? Right down the street, are we loving them? And the question we kind of wrestled with is, do we even know their names? Do we even know anything about them? And so we had this little scary sheet last week that we looked at that's available for you in the foyer. And I highly encourage all of you to pick one of these up and start filling it out. It's just a simple grid. And there's eight boxes around your house and I know none of us live in a perfect grid like this, but the eight closest homes to you, could you fill this grid out of the people who live there? And A is their names. B is something pretty general about them. Maybe their job or their family background. And then C would be something more in-depth about them. Maybe what motivates them, what they believe about God, could you fill this grid out of your eight closest neighbors? Because this is the place that God placed you. In many ways, this is your immediate mission field. And the statistics aren't great on this. This comes from the, uh, the book, The Art of Neighboring. And they said in that that only 10% of people can fill out A for all of that. Uh, less than three can fill out B. And less than 1% can fill out all that information about all their neighbors. And so we're, we're ho I'm hoping that we're getting our wheels turning of the opportunities we have right around us. We're a missional church, and we're one that's about reaching people with the gospel of Christ. Are we taking the opportunities we have and taking advantage of them and making the most of them? And so I encourage you, if you haven't picked one of these up, uh, grab the sheet and start thinking about ways you can fill this out so that you can be praying for your neighbors and building those relationships and oftentimes, when it comes to outreach, <clears throat> we overthink it, all right? We, we think about the strategy. We think about all of the exceptions and all of the risks. And we, we have to formulate this bulletproof game plan before we go over to our neighbors. But really, outreach is as simple as shaking out your, or, or stretching out your hand and introducing yourself, asking them about uh, who they are and explaining yourself to them. It just takes the first step of initiation. But it's scary. 
right? There's a lot of things that keep us from doing this, and that's what we're talking about today is, is overcoming your fears of building relationships with people, especially those who aren't Christians. And if we look at this at a high level, we can kind of see two kinds of fears, and it's going to be a two-part sermon today. There's, uh, we're going to be reading out of the book of Luke and out of the book of 1 Peter, but, but the first kind of fear is a fear based on how you perceive others, right? Is what, what you see in them that now creates these roadblocks of building these relationships. You don't know these strangers, and this idea of stranger danger has been built in us from a young age. But if you know nothing about them, you start asking the questions, are, are they dangerous? Are they difficult? Do I want my kids mixing with their kids? Are they too far gone where it's not even worth talking to them? They wouldn't be interested in Jesus anyway. So there's fears based on how you perceive them, but then there's also fears based on how you believe they perceive you. That's what we're going to be reading out of 1 Peter today. Do they think I'm weird? Chances are, yes, you are weird, right? If you're a Christian, you're going to seem weird to everyone, but are they going to reject me? Are they going to mock me? Are they going to hate me? Are they going to harm me? All these questions we ask about the people and how they may perceive us brings us to all of these fears that create roadblocks in doing something simple like filling out this kind of sheet. How do we overcome these fears? And how do we move past them to build these important relationships? Well, the first... uh, part we're going to tackle today is how do we overcome these fears based on how we perceive them. And this, as Pastor Phil said, is going to come out of the book of Luke. It's the account of Jesus calling Levi, the tax collector, to faith, to be a disciple. So let's read that together here. This is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a section of scripture I've actually referenced a couple times in the last year. And it's a really important and powerful uh, example of the love of Jesus. We haven't really taken a deep look in it, uh, into it as we are today, but there's one big point of application here is that our flawed perceptions of people are not the same as God's perceptions. And we create all of these labels and marginalizations in our mind of people that we view them and perceive them in a way that God sees them totally different. And our prayer as as Christians is to see people like Jesus would see people, that we could overcome these fears of others based on how we perceive them. But it's, 
it's natural that we come to these kinds of fears. I think in our day and age, uh, fear of others is kind of built into us. Uh, we've learned to kind of classify who is and isn't certain things. We're often divided on many issues. And this brokenness of our world uh, kind of causes us to have this suspicion and fear of people we don't know. Just a few minutes with the TV on or the newspaper open or social media on your phone, and you're going to see all of the worst of the worst of humanity that we live in this era where the only good news is bad news. And this 24-hour news cycle is happening where we see the worst of people around the world. It's shared over and over again. It's commented on. And now this shapes our perceptions of how we see people. We start asking the question, is, is there really that many more sick and broken people in the world than when I was a kid? Or has technology changed so much that this news is coming faster and more frequently than before? I think it's a tough question to answer. We often glorify the past. There's always been sick and broken people in the world. But it's also true that our cultural values are changing. But, but this perception leads us to these safe, calculated, controlled lives where we have this very curated list of people we can and cannot interact with. And that's a, a fancy way of saying we isolate ourselves. Right? We, we pigeonhole or we, we kind of stay in our foxholes and we never go out of our house because it's too scary. And people have problems out there, so stay clear. But Jesus shows us that he invites people with problems, these problem people, he invites them to follow him and he, he actively seeks them. That Jesus went out, this is right after he healed a leper, okay, another marginalized person of society that everyone gives up on, and they push him off to the fringes. He heals a leper, and right after this, he goes out to a tax collector at his booth by the name of Levi and invites him to follow him as a disciple. Now, this, this guy named Levi is actually Matthew, the disciple. They're the same person. It's common for people to have two names, uh, this is the last moment in the Gospels that we see him referred to as Levi, and from here on out, he'll be referred to as Matthew. So today, I'm going to refer to him as Matthew in the sermon, just to avoid any confusion. Levi is, is Matthew, but he calls this tax collector to follow him. Now, some cultural context here. The tax collectors were of the most hated of Jews, they were seen as traitors because these tax collectors were employed by the Roman government to keep a list of all of their fellow Jews, to assess taxes to them, and to make sure that these taxes were paid. And they had the opportunity then to tax them whatever they felt like, and they would often profiteer. They'd take a margin of these taxes back for themselves. And this was encouraged by the Roman government. It's how the taxpayers were paid. And so they were often very pretentious. They lived large in their life while their fellow Jews suffered. And so it was natural for these Jews to kind of hate and disown these tax collectors. They were people with big problems. And so it probably shocked a lot that Jesus reached out to this man, Matthew, and said, come and follow me. There's many historians who believe that Matthew would follow Jesus around as well. It was, it was common that these tax collectors would follow these great orators. 
and that they would uh, use this as a convenient moment to see all of these Jews gathered, that they can now pull up their records and make sure these taxes were paid. And it's just this opportunistic moment uh, to be following Jesus around. So it's likely that Matthew already knew Jesus at this point for all of the wrong reasons. He was hearing these teachings, but he was there to really prey on those Jews. But the positive side effect is that you know, he's, he's hearing these teachings and seeing the miracles of Jesus, and Matthew understands that Jesus is different. And maybe even at this point, he's starting to understand that Jesus is for real. So on the outside, we see this tax collector, this terrible, good-for-nothing man, right, who is hated by his own people, but on the inside, he may be softening to Jesus and ready for this life change. And when Jesus offers this invitation for him to follow Christ, he immediately accepts, leaves his whole life behind, leaves his, his tax collector position behind and all of the wealth that comes with it, all of the protection with the Roman government, it's gone. He leaves it behind to follow Jesus. And this is the amazing example of what Jesus can do in someone's life, even these worst of the worst, the people we have these perceptions about, that there's no hope for them. Jesus can change them 180 degrees in a split second because we don't know where their hearts are. We only see what's on the outside. But our practice is often to remove ourselves from them, to consider them lost. We don't want them to rub off on us. We don't want to be in danger being around them. But Jesus gives us the opposite example, that he routinely interacted with these worst of the society, the, the sinners. And so even after he called Levi to be this, uh, Matthew to be a disciple, now he wants to throw a party with all of his friends to introduce them to his new friend Jesus. And this could have actually uh, been more of an evangelistic approach from Matthew. I'm following this man I know as the Messiah, and now I want my friends to have the same opportunity. And Jesus said yes. He went to this party with all of these terrible people, but the Pharisees, these religious elites, saw this, and he talked to the other disciples of Jesus and said, why is your master, and why are you eating and drinking with these tax collectors and these sinners, these, these bad people you shouldn't be missing, messing with? These are the people that everyone gave up on, even the religious elite. And Jesus was often spending time with these kinds of people that, that everyone gave up on. The financial con artists, the demon-possessed, the lepers, the prostitutes, the unlovely, the diseased, the political extremists. We see through the scriptures that Jesus built relationships with them all. And in our day and age, we have to be wise who we build relationships with, but consider the directions of influence here. If you're more afraid of how they could influence you, maybe think about the opportunities of how you could influence them to Christ. Christians aren't called to this isolation and fear. They're called to engage in the messiness of relationships and not to see them through the context of fear, but through the context of hope. We all have these neighbors and friends and coworkers. And by the way, when we talk about neighbors through this series, 
that's just the starting point. It can be applied to anyone in your life who needs Jesus. But we see these people we consider unclean, unworthy, lost forever. And so we write them off much like most of the people would have in Matthew's day. We see them only through our own perceptions, through the context of this broken and and hurting humanity. But Jesus sees them differently. And he offers this hope for the hopeless. It's not up for us to decide who's fit for the kingdom. But Jesus calls exclusively sinners to the kingdom of God. So I want you to think about who is that person that you've wrote off in your life? That you've considered gone? That has no hope? The rough around the edges? Maybe the, it's that intellectual atheist you know that wins every single argument that you don't want to talk to? Maybe it's a friend who's just morally bankrupt and kind of off the rails? In your mind, they're gone. Your perception is that there's no hope. But Jesus calls people just like that to the faith, the broken and the misguided. He says he's the way, the truth, and the life. For someone who's off the rails, they're never too far gone. You have the opportunity to point them to Jesus, who is the way. What we see in this last bit of the scripture is that any person can be made completely new in Christ. Jesus overheard this comment of the Pharisees to his disciples, and he decided to engage with them. And he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We see Jesus wants the worst of the worst to come to him. He wants those who understand they need help to come to them, to him so they could repent of their sins and have this great, wonderful 180 change in their life. They're made completely new. He uses this analogy we can all understand with, that it's not the healthy who go to a doctor, but the sick. It's those who understand there's something wrong with them. Manny and I uh, just spent some time in the emergency room on Friday. Our last 48 hours have been kind of a, uh, a bit of everything all at once. Uh, Mason broke his collarbone on Friday, and uh, three and a half year old, and it's hard for them to understand uh, much, but he knew it hurt. He fell off a piece of furniture, and uh, we knew something was wrong probably a broken bone, we're assuming. So we explained everything to him. We're going to go to the doctor because you're hurt, and they're going to make you feel better. They're going to take a picture of your bones, and you might see it broken, but you're going to get a sling, and it's going to be all better soon. The doctor is going to help you. And we could have taken him to the doctor, and and he could have had the x-ray and everything, and Mason could have said, you know what, I'm fine. I don't need help. And we explained to him, your bone's going to heal back together in some time. And even later that night, I think he was just tired of the pain. He said, Dad, my bone healed back together now. I'm done. But the poor kid is you know, he's in a lot of pain, but he knows that he's hurt and that he's getting help. But statistics actually show us there's a large amount of people, especially in the cardiac realm and heart, heart doctors, they say that 90% of people who are told, if you don't change this part about your life, you will die, 90% of people say, eh, 
And they continue in these destructive ways, and they're basically saying, I'm not sick. There's many sinners who have that same attitude to God. I'm not sick. I'm fine. And what Jesus is telling us is we don't want those kinds of people in our group. We want the people who know they're sick. And so there's kind of a twofold rebuke here from Jesus to this style of thinking. And unfortunately, it's, it's pretty pervasive in our church that we often spend a lot of time pointing out all the faults of the non-Christians around us while sitting back and feeling pretty holy and righteous about ourselves. So the two sides of this rebuke is don't think too highly of yourself and don't think too lowly of others. Because in Jesus, there's this immense hope for change. You might say, I know my neighbor's not a Christian, and they're never going to be a Christian because they're doing all of these things I know are wrong, and they're a sinner, and there's no hope. But throughout the scriptures, Jesus changes the worst of the worst, like the Apostle Paul, like this tax collector. And even in in our age, these aren't just old stories. In our day and age, we see all of these amazing stories of life change. A couple uh, years ago in Christianity Today, they had this kind of highlight of the most amazing conversions of the year. And I remember there's things in there like this hitman who killed dozens of people in his life found Jesus in prison. This, this clansman who his whole life he hated people who were different than him found Jesus and changed tremendously and now is trying to minister to his former clansmen to bring, bring them Christ. This Islamic terrorist who found Jesus and is now in danger himself for being a Christian. The stories are endless. They're all around us, and in many ways, they're in us as well. That nobody is too far gone. Nobody is hopeless, despite our perceptions of them. We don't need to be afraid of people because they're broken. But we're called to bring them this hope, this relentless and unmatched hope that no matter where you're at, Jesus can change you. Jesus can save you. Any person can be made completely new in Christ. We need not fear others based on our perceptions of them. Because Jesus is bigger than any fear. We also need not fear based on their perceptions of us. And that's the next section we're going to focus on here in the the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Now, to give you some context of what we're about to read, uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is explaining to a group of believers that, look, this isn't easy. There's going to be risks involved in this Christianity thing, especially to these groups of believers. They were experiencing a lot of opposition to crazy degrees. Some of them were dying for the faith. But he offers them this hope in Christ that above all of that, Jesus can be bigger than your fears and bigger than the dangers around you. So read now in uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 16. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. As I said, Peter is addressing this uh, group of believers that have gone through uh, persecution, many kinds of persecution. And every part of these believers is saying, stick to yourself. Isolate. Keep your head down and your mouth closed and you'll make it. Maybe some of them are starting to ask the question, is this whole Christianity thing worth it based on all the opposition we're feeling and the amount of people who hate us? But keep in, man, keep in mind that the man who's writing this, this is, this is Peter, who himself denied knowing Jesus in front of people who were a threat to him. He denied him three times, and he's been living with this regret his whole life. But now, Peter has seen the other side. He's seen the resurrected Jesus. He knows without a doubt that Jesus is for real. All right? And that the hope in him is unmatched in anything in the world. And now he's encouraging these believers in, in the same way he's encouraging us to stay strong, to be bold, to be courageous. And the truth is there's always going to be some sort of risk when you're a Christian. It's not always going to be uh, you running for your life. And many of us don't experience anything like that in our society. But there is the uh, real probability you're going to feel marginalized you're going to feel judged. You're going to be mocked. You could lose your job. You could lose a position. You could lose friendships over this. It's all a very realistic probability. And whenever we feel or sense that, that bit of opposition, our natural uh, tendency is to fear the future, to fear others, to isolate and keep to yourself. But the first thing is this, to, to know the difference between assumed or perceived danger and actual danger. The reality is when we, we live in these kind of fears, we're, we're dealing with a lot of assumptions. And our minds often bring these things to the highest degree. So he asks kind of a rhetorical question here. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? All right, now he's already told the Christians in this letter that they are persecuted, that there is going to be hardships, but it's this idea that it's probably not going to be as bad as you think it's going to be. And persecution is not the eventuality for every Christian, despite what we may think. And there's some Christians today who live in this uh, phenomenon called the persecution complex. In our culture, there's certainly going to be things that are not popular. And there's going to be some resistance against us, but we're, we're not necessarily persecuted here in the levels we see in a worldwide context or scriptural context. But you could now be assuming everything as persecution around you, the way they looked at me. They're going to they're gonna hate me, and eventually they may try to harm me. But what you perceive as danger is often very different than the actual danger. And if you're really striving to do good and to love people, chances are uh, they're not going to respond in a negative way. And when you make that relationship with people that, uh, and you, you start that, they're often going to reciprocate very well and probably be ashamed that they didn't make the step first. But you need to balance uh, your fears with discernment. We certainly need to be wise in the way we interact with people. Okay? And if I have a neighbor move in down the street, 
I'm not going to go introduce myself and say, can my son Mason stay with you for a week? Right? You have to have some discernment, knowing that there are real threats out there. But also know the threats probably aren't as big as you think they are. When you're conditioned to be afraid of your neighbors, you kind of have to combat that fear somewhat. And one example we see in the scriptures of this is when God was leading Israel into the promised land and they finally made it to the border for the first time. Rather than going in and trusting God, they decided to, to send 12 spies into the land to see, kind of, is this as good as God said it was? And what's it looking like? Are these, are these cities big and fortified? Do they have a lot of armies? Is there going to be a lot of resistance? And so 10 of the spies came back and said, it's, it's amazing. This is exactly what God said it was. But the people are scary. Right? They look like giants. They have these big cities. And if we go in, we're going to die. Because we're like grasshoppers to them. They could just squish us. But two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, this is for real, and we need to go, and we need to trust God that our perceived fears of this place are not as big as the actual danger because we can trust God's promises. And unfortunately, the nation followed these negative reports who said, be afraid. We're going to die if we go over there. And so God was angry at this nation and sent them wandering in the desert for 40 years, and all of them died from this generation except the two spies that gave the favorable report, Joshua and Caleb. And so they went into the promised land. And shortly after they went, they heard this report from Rahab. And this is in Joshua 2, where, where it was said that all these people are actually afraid of you, afraid of Israel. And when we saw you, we, we kind of shook in our boots because we knew how God had provided for you, that he made the, red, that he made the sea dry, that he made you victorious in all these battles. And here you actually have two people just afraid of each other based on their perceived dangers of one another. And I think that's how we often see our neighbors that we don't want to reach out to. We're afraid of them. They're probably afraid of you too. And all it takes is a step of boldness to overcome your fear and to start that relationship. I think we have to make more room in your heart for Jesus than for your fears. And fear has that way of just completely overtaking you and paralyzing you. You don't see the world straight. And this is where we're we're told that even if you should suffer for what is right, you're going to be blessed in that. What that means is you can suffer in this world for for one of two things, what's doing, doing what is evil or doing what is good. Now, if you follow Christ and you suffer, it's not the suffering necessarily that's the blessing, but he's going to bless you with strength, and courage and peace and joy that will equally match whatever suffering you go through. You're going to be able to make it through anything no matter how much you fear it. So don't be afraid of that. Don't be frightened. And a better way of saying this is don't be timid. And Paul, the Apostle Paul's protege, was Timothy. And we see a lot of really um, cool interactions between Paul and Timothy in First and Second Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing this timidity of Timothy, that he was a, a young guy in charge of a lot of things. He knew his stuff, but he was one that was often scared. He was probably an introvert. I can identify with him in a lot of ways, actually. And so he was told by Paul, if you're entrusted with these things, this, this whole church of Ephesus, 
don't be afraid. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but he gives us power and love and self-discipline. God intends for us to be bold, to take risks. Even if they're calculated, we are to take those risks and make sure that Jesus is bigger in your heart than your fear. That last part is that we should always revere Christ as Lord. This means that you believe that Jesus, not any human opponent, is really the one in control. That you live with this peace, this confidence, and a hope that Jesus will never steer you wrong. That if you follow him and follow his commands to be his hands and his feet, to shine the light in this world, to bring his gospel to all of the needy, that he's not going to steer you wrong. And even if it, there's some resistance, he's going to be with you through it. He truly is Lord in this world. When you do that, you live with this great confidence in him. And another way of, of, of explaining confidence is hope. There's this unwavering trust in God. What we see is that when you live with that hope, when you overcome your fears, it lends to opportunities to share Christ. And Peter's assuming that these believers are going to live with this confidence, that all of us will as, as well. And when you do that, you should always be prepared to answer everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You're going to look immensely different than the world. And if you desire to point your faith outward, to live with that confidence in God, people are going to start to take notice and ask you questions. Just in this last week, someone actually asked me, who's, who's not a believer, how do you live with such peace and confidence in this world, this messed up world? Let me tell you. There's so much stuff you can put your confidence in. There's so many things you can find peace in, but they're all going to change. But Jesus has been the solid rock in my life. And so that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Got them thinking. See, when people ask you, there's really no wrong answer in sharing your faith, but there's a wrong way to share the answer. I think oftentimes we're more worried about winning arguments with people than, than winning people to Christ. That when we share these things, it's to, to do it with gentleness and respect, to talk to people at their level, to have patience with them, and we're not here to force them into anything, but to simply share Christ and the source of hope in our lives. And we're going to be talking about that more in a couple of weeks. How do we share truth with people? How do you talk to people about Jesus? That's scary, and often we overcomplicate that as well. But I want to just wrap up today's sermon with one kind of um, introspective question here to, to have, help you think through this. You know, so often we're overcome with our fears of others, and, and it could be based on our perceptions of them or their perceptions of us, but are you more concerned with what others think about you or with what they think about Jesus? Okay, are you more concerned with what other people think of you or what they think of Jesus? I think oftentimes we're so concerned with how we are seen in this world. Right? It's not fun to be seen as awkward or weird or wrong. 
But ultimately, that just kind of ends with our life here. It's a very temporary thing. But what they think about Jesus has eternal implications. When you live a life as a compassionate person who truly loves people, you're more worried about their eternity than your temporary. And I think what Jesus wants all of us to do is to be thinking uh, be more consumed with what other people think about Jesus. How can we be a part of that change? And we're not going to uh, win them over for heaven ourselves. Right? We're not going to convict them of, of their sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But when you really have this compassion for people, for their eternity, to be concerned about how they see Jesus, we begin to pray for them. We begin to serve them. We begin to, begin to love them at a deeper level. What people think of Jesus has great significance in their life forever. So today, as we think about, we're going to come back to this, we think about this. This isn't for you. This isn't for you to look good in front of your neighbors. It's for your neighbors to see Christ. And through this series, we're going to continue in that of how you can exemplify Christ and build these gospel-centered relationships. But I just want to end in prayer again, because I want to encourage all of you to really find that boldness and that confidence to live and to share truth with those around you. Let's, let's pray together. So Lord, we thank you again for uh, the time to gather here. And these two examples in your scriptures are just, just two of many. It's, it is so clear. This is your invitation for all of us to live outwardly, to overcome these fears we have, to revere you as Lord in our hearts. There's nothing bigger or greater or better than you. And so, God, I pray that you would just instill in us this passion, this love, this compassion to, to share you with others, that what would keep us up at night is, does my neighbor know Jesus? God, would you lead us into those interactions that we would just be used by you, that we trust in you in all things, and know that you would never lead us into something that, that you won't be with us, with us through. So, God, give us that, uh, that, uh, that drive to just really know our neighbors, to know our friends and our coworkers, that it's all for you and for your glory. As we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.